year? Man, this year. It felt like everything sped up. The hate, the crazy, the kindness, the joy, the pain, the fear. Often, it felt like we could do anything. Or it felt like the enemy was at the gate. Or in the house. So much, it's hard to contemplate what's coming next without taking a moment to turn around and look back at where we've been. So, that's what we're going to do. Today, from Snap Judgment's Underground Lair and WNYC Studios, we're going back. Stories about childhoods, stories about memory, stories about family history up close. The 2018 Look Back Special. My name is from Washington. Buckle up. I'm driving in reverse because you're listening to Snap Judgment. We begin with Norman Olsad, who grew up with a tough guy father who would wake him up at 4 a.m. and drag him through crazy life and death outdoor adventures. But Norman, Norman wanted none of that. Until one fateful day, and Snap Judgment's Davey Kim brings you the story of the moment everything changed. Snap Judgment. Eleven-year-old Norman Olstad III is on a short chartered flight with his dad and his dad's girlfriend, Sandra. They're traveling from Santa Monica Airport in Southern California to Big Bear Mountain. Norman's going to train with the local ski team and pick up a ski slalom championship trophy he won a little while back. You know, we're heading that way, and my dad's reading the sports section, eating an apple, which is his classic morning routine. My dad was in really good spirits because I'd won the ski race the day before, which was sort of a payoff for all our hard work. But Norman wasn't excited because, well, he was just burnt out. As far back as Norman can remember, his dad plugged him into every sport imaginable, scooping him out of kindergarten to go surfing or skiing down black diamond runs. His dad even gave him a nickname, Boy Wonder, for all the medals he won and his father-son adventures. Most of Norman's friends were kind of jealous. I didn't necessarily think it was cool, actually. I wanted to be on my bicycle, you know, riding around with my friends. I didn't want to be driving for nine hours to go to a ski race. I didn't want to be getting up at four o'clock in the morning to go to hockey practice. I wanted to spend the night at somebody's house, do a sleepover, wake up, watch cartoons. (laughs) I missed a lot of birthday parties, and so, yeah, I, I resented that. I would complain. He would just sort of respond with something like, Jeez, Olstead, I mean, look at this. We got the snow. We got our skis on. Don't worry about being cold. If you ski a little bit, you'll warm up. (laughs) I remember where we were skiing a chute. It was way too deep for me. I was eight, nine years old. And the sides of the, the little bowl we were in was like a wall of snow, and I rammed into it got my head stuck in the snow and I couldn't breathe. And my dad came, skied up behind me, pulled me out. I said, did you see what happened? And I almost drowned. He said, no, no, I had an eye on you the whole time. You were fine. He was not worried about me drowning or anything. He thought I was just looking for an excuse. He said, you know, come on, let's go. Tough it out. 
I thought that was pushing it too far. Up ahead, I could see through the windshield that the tops of the mountains were sort of cut off by dark gray clouds. I had the headphones on, so I remember hearing one of the radar towers mention that that another plane had, had called in saying that the weather around Big Bear was really bad and that he had to go around the area. There seemed to be sort of suggestion that maybe we would want to return to L.A., and the pilot did not respond to that. His responses were like, oh, no, we're okay, we're good. Definitely made me think, huh, maybe I'm going to tell my dad what I'm hearing, but, you know, the pilot is the pilot. Not long after that, all of a sudden, we were in a snowstorm. You couldn't see out the windows. The plane was shaking. We start to actually bounce around. It's kind of scary. This went on for a few minutes until I noticed pilots moving more frantically. I can hear the engine straining, revving. I remember at this point thinking, I gotta tell my dad. I looked back at him and he was smiling and he was eating the core of the apple, which he did. He even ate the stem. He used the stem to kind of clean his teeth out after he devoured the whole of the apple. And he just was glowing and smiling and he, he had these really strong sapphire blue eyes. Seeing him like that just sort of dampened my, my willingness to sort of say anything. I see through the fog and the snow a tree limb down kind of lower than where we are. And I think, there's no way. And now that I saw the tree limb, I thought, I gotta say something. And before I could, watch out. Curled my body up, three hard thuds. And then I woke up and I was on the side of a mountain. The Cessna plane was just a couple hundred feet shy of making it over the mountain peak. Instead, it had crashed into the San Gabriel Mountains. Now, it was hanging off a cliff over 8,000 feet in the air. When I woke up the first time and I look around, there's snow and kind of pieces of metal. Figured it was a dream, I went back to sleep. I woke up the second time, I couldn't breathe because the seatbelt was like choking my my stomach. So I remember unlatching the seatbelt and calling out for my father. I didn't hear anything back. It was something I had said before, like when snow went into my mouth and I was choking, you know, he pulled me out. I remember that jarring me a little bit. So I kind of wiggled out of the seat and the first thing I saw was two feet sticking up with shoes on. It was the pilot's legs, and then I saw his head. He was on his back, and the back of his head, I could tell, had sort of bled out into the snow. Then then I knew it was real. I called out for my father again, and that's when Sandra called back. And she was about 10 or 15 feet up the slope, and she was still in her seat, which had sort of torn away from the plane. I crawled up to her, 
found her and she had a big wound in her forehead and within seconds I realized that one of her shoulders had dislocated. It was kind of just hanging down like a broken wing. Sandra was very panicked. She was talking in circles and mumbling. Norman helped Sandra hobble down under the plane wing and made a small shelter. That's when he saw his dad for the first time since the crash. His dad was still buckled to his chair but was exposed to the freezing air. So Norman plunged his bare hands, van shoes, and knees into the snow and crawled along the mountain edge to where his dad was sitting. Ultimately, he wanted to move his dad into the makeshift shelter with Sandra. And I got to him and he was slumped forward with his head kind of on his knees. I shook him, trying to wake him up, and nothing. But he still felt warm, and that made me think that he had just been knocked out. And I got under him, and I pushed, and I got on the side of him, and I pulled without sending him down the slope like everything else that moves. I'm this little 11-year-old. I was only 75 pounds, and I didn't have the strength to move his body. I was freezing. My hands were frozen, and my toes were frozen. I had no gloves, I had Vans tennis shoes, no, no ski cap or anything. And I had to get out of there. So I went back to the wing and I got under with Sandra and we, we spooned for body heat. We fell asleep. I had another almost dreamlike thing where I had had a conversation with my father a year before this. His truck had gotten caught in mud and we were wandering around looking for help. It was really hot. I remember asking him about what happens when you boil to death. He told me something like, you're thirsty and you're kind of disoriented. And, and then I said, well, what happens when you freeze to death? And he said, well, you're really cold and then you get tired and you fall asleep and you just don't wake up. Here I am asleep, it's freezing, and I'm conscious of the fact that I have to wake up. So I made myself wake up. I woke Sandra up, and I said, you know, we can't sleep. I mean, we're freezing to death. At that point, I hear these booming kind of sound that right away sounds like a helicopter to me. I'm excited to hear this helicopter. And so I get out from under the wing, and it's hovering above us, and I start screaming and yelling and waving my arms. Hey, I'm, we're here, we're here, right here, right here. Helicopter's kind of like bobbing and weaving and dipping. And I'm thinking he sees me and very excited. I'm screaming and yelling and waving. Suddenly, the helicopter just banks away. At that point, Norman could feel the storm picking up again. But before the angry gray clouds obscured his view over the mountain edge, Norman carefully peered down and saw among some trees, well, he thought he saw a cabin roof. I remember thinking, aha, you know, if nobody comes for us, we got to get to that cabin before dark. I go back and Sandra is asleep again and I wake her up and I tell her, we're going to freeze to death up here. We can't spend the night up here. And she says, oh no, somebody will come and we can't get down that mountain. And I tell her, look, I'm going. You have to come. Finally got her out of there from under the wing. 
I broke off some tree limbs and I said, we're going to use these as like little ice axes and you're going to jam this into the snow. You're going to lay on your stomach and your feet are going to go down first and I'll be below you, Sandra, and you'll keep your weight on my shoulders. I went back to my father and, and I told him that I was going to get help for us. We start down the mountain, very, very steep. At this point, you can't really see very far below anymore. At one point, Sandra kind of wandered to my right and had lost contact with me a little bit. She sat up, and I was telling her not to. Simultaneously, she sort of rolled away from me. I would sort of lose grip and start sliding, so she would start sliding. I sort of reached out, sort of leaned over to try to stop her, and she just bowled me right over and just kept sliding away, and she just shooting down the slope and just disappeared into the fog, into the clouds. Boom, she was gone. Norman spent the next hour following the blotchy trail of blood Sandra had left behind in the snow. When he finally found her, she was lying on her back under a cluster of trees. And her eyes were open. And I spoke to her and shook her, but she was dead. It was like I knew she was dead. I broke off all these tree limbs and I tried to pile them on her just so that the snow wouldn't build up right on her and maybe they'd keep her warm. And as I did that, I remember thinking, you know, I'm the one that made her come down the mountain. Felt badly about that. I sort of lost it for a second. I'm exhausted, I'm starving, and I'm basically just going to die right here. I remember sort of like laying on these rocks, hearing my father, geez, Olstead, I mean, look at this. We got the snow. Don't worry about being cold. If you ski a little bit, you'll warm up. That's when I realized, geez, if I had skis and I was with my dad, we would just ski down this. I used the two sticks I had, and I sat on my butt and let myself slide down the mountain, and I used the sticks to plant in the snow to slow me down, but also to sort of make slalom turns. The inspiration to slalom down on my butt came from all my ski adventures with my father. Slalom race was my forte. In fact, that was the race I had just won the day before. After a while, God, you know, I'd fumble and scrap my way down this mountain. Suddenly I sort of plopped down onto this meadow. It was the first flat ground I'd been on in, at that point, probably eight, eight and a half hours. At that point, I see fresh footprints in the snow, and so I followed them. They deposited me onto this dirt road, and so I started down the dirt road in the direction of where I thought the cabin was. As I came around the bend, a dog came running up. Seconds later was a teenage boy. You know, he kind of looked at me, startled. Before I could speak, he said, were you in the airplane crash? And I was like, yeah. He says to me, let me pick you up. And I said, no, I'll walk. 
but he just picked me up anyway. I'm cradled in his arms, and it, it felt good. He's carrying me down this dirt road, and I'm looking back up at the mountain that I had just come down and seeing it as this thing and the storm and the clouds, this thing that was like, you know, tried to beat me, and I beat it. That was the first time in, in a long time that I became sad and thought about my father. You know, all those things I did with my father, I had to use so much of that, more so the state of mind, the mentality. And thinking my dad's still up there, frozen, and the snow piling up on his body. And it was the first time I thought, you know, he might be dead. How can something like that happen? And he was like my Superman. He was always the strongest, smartest, yet here I am alive. I just sort of thought he, he gave that to me. He saved my life, he taught me how to survive. It was the first time I, I ever appreciated the things he dragged me through. The plane, groping through the fog, heading for a ski resort in the mountains above Los Angeles, went down yesterday morning. For hours, helicopters searched for the wreckage and survivors. As it turned out, there was only one, 11-year-old Norman Olstad. I just, I tried to wake my dad up, couldn't get him, or the pilot. And, my, my, and the skin on my hands kept coming off, you know, bleeding really bad. You know, I never gave up, my dad never, Taught me never to give up. <laughs> Thank you so much, Norman. Norman is still an avid skier, and he takes his two kids on the same runs he did with his father. Read more about this story in Norman's book, Crazy for the Storm, and also check out his latest thriller, French Girl with the Mother. We'll have a link to both on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score was by Davey Kim, and it was produced by Davey Triple Threat Kim. With Snap Judgment, the 2018 Look Back special continues. We've got a celebrity sighting. Hassan Minaj, yes, that Hassan Minaj, drops it down on the snap. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Look Back Special. Now for our next story, with Hassan Minaj. Hassan Minaj was just a kid growing up in the suburbs. All he ever dreamed about was getting the perfect toy. But of course, this is Snap Judgment. So Hassan got something else entirely. It's my seventh birthday, and it's September 23rd. It's a Saturday, and my dad, he wakes me up super early in the morning, and he's like, Hassan, get up. And I was like, okay. He's like, get in the Camry. Get in the Camry, and in Davis in the morning, it's really foggy, like, because we live Davis, Sacramento, Northern California, it's like in the fields. So it's really foggy, and we're in the Camry, and we're driving from Davis to Sacramento. And we get to this intersection, and I look to my left, and it's the one place that every kid dreams about. It's Toys R Us. 
I was like, oh my God. Dad saw the cutout on my wall. On my wall back home in my bedroom, I had this cutout from the Toys R Us Kids catalog. And it was this cutout of this beautiful blue BMX bike that I wanted. 21 speed, 17.2 pounds. And I was like, oh, Like dad saw the Toys R Us Kids catalog cut out on my wall. He saw my little baby vision board and he's gonna get me this beautiful blue BMX bike that I always wanted. And then he turns right and I'm like, Home Depot? No! He took me to Home Depot on my birthday. I'm walking through the aisles of Home Depot. I'm in my pajamas. It's like 7.30 in the morning. I'm like, dad, do you even know what day it is today? He's like, yeah, it's Saturday. And I'm like, no, it's my birthday. Like, today's my birthday. It's September 23rd. Did you forget that it's my birthday? And he's like, no, Hassan, of course, of course I know it's your birthday. That's why I brought you here to Home Depot. So you could pick out the door handle for the bathroom. And I'm like, why don't you have me pick out the toilet? Because you're all over my dreams. You know, the first, the first eight years of my life, it's pretty much, you know, me and my dad. And my mom, she's back in India uh, going to med school. She got married to my dad young, so she has to finish up the residency and rotation thing. Now my mom, conversely, she would come to the States and she would just kill the mom game. It was like being at Disneyland. We were a family. We were all together. She would bring physical gifts. She came to Pioneer Elementary School and brought me a Ghostbusters 1 proton pack. I'm talking about the backpack. I'm talking about the gun. I'm talking about the wheelie thing that catches ghosts. Kids were losing their minds. They're like, what? Hassan's a ghostbuster? I'm like, yes, I'm a ghostbuster. It was one of the happiest days of my life. She was really sweet, and she was really into what I was doing, and she wanted me to have fun. But then she'd have to go back to finish her studies in India. I'd be like, Dad, when is she coming back? When is she coming home? And my dad would be like, look, when her visa goes through, we, we'll, we'll be together. We'll be a family again. And I remember the day she came home. It was August 11th, 1993. I'm eight years old. I was so excited. I run into my room and I put on my Ghostbusters proton pack and I'm standing there in the living room. And my dad takes one look at me and he's like, Hassan, put on Indian clothes. And I'm like, all right, I'll be an Indian Ghostbuster. That's fine. I'm like wearing like shavar kameez. I'm <laughs> this like backpack on. And I'm waiting in the living room. The door opens. And my mom walks in, my dad walks in, and then immediately behind my parents is this little brown girl with a mushroom cut. And she just runs over to me, and she's like, Hassan, bye! And she hugs me, and I'm in full hover hands mode because I have no idea who this person is. Basically what happened was my dad would go back and forth to India to visit my mom, And then during one of his trips, he knocked her up, and I had a sister, but no one told me about her. My immediate reaction is like, who is this person? I was supposed to have mom to myself, I didn't get that. We were supposed to be a family, the three of us. I didn't get, I had a sister, no one told me about her. So my mom took this photo of us, and this is the first photo of me and Aisha together like brother and sister. Aisha is wearing this like blue jumpsuit. I'm in a wh- all white shalvar kameez. So I'm like white kurta, white pajama bottoms. And I'm like, I'm hugging her. Her arms are squeezed tight around me and she's looking at the camera like smiling. She's like, aha, America. And then I'm like hugging her like, I guess this is the way 
people in movies are supposed to hug. And then the, the thing that was the worst was they, they were just like, now go take care of her. And my dad's like, Hassan, why aren't you happy? And I'm like, I'm ha- why am I not? Because you brought this girl out like Maury for immigrants. Like you were just like, Hassan, you are the brother. And she just comes out and she's dancing just like, where's my bunk bed? I'm like, who are you? She's like, you don't know me. You don't. Yeah, I have no idea who you are. Get out of my room. I didn't sign up for this. You guys did. And my dad's like, Hassan, we're a family. We're all that we have. And he, We're a family. We're all that we have. He just kept saying that. And I'm like, no, that's on you and mom. I mean, I already had this feeling at school where I wasn't even getting by. Hussin by, hussin by, hussin by. Kids are like, what's hussin by? It's like, how do I explain to Cody? Oh, it's a term of endearment in my culture. It means hussin brother. And as a kid, all you want to do is fit in. That's all I wanted to do more than anything in the world. And having my sister follow me around on the playground, I'm playing kickball, wall ball, hussin by. I'm like, get lost. And eventually I just couldn't take it anymore. And so I try to ditch her and I run into the boys' bathroom. She follows me into the boys' bathroom, hustin' by. And eventually, I just turn and I snap. I'm just like, hey, you're not, you're not my sister. My sister. And she couldn't understand English. But she could get what I was saying. You know, she started crying and all these, like, tears are going down her little chubby cheeks. And she runs out of the bathroom. And I look at her and I'm like, oh, man. She's going to tell dad. And I'm going to get it. But she didn't tell dad. My dad, he had told my mom all these big promises when they had originally gotten married. I'm going to take you to America. We got this. It's going to be like this and that. And, and, And all those things didn't exactly go over the way he had planned. He really wanted to make make it up to Aisha in a really big way. And so for her fifth birthday, my sister's very first birthday in the United States, he wanted to make it super special. So he brings everybody in the living room and he drags in this big brown box and he hands Aisha a pair of scissors. He's like, Aisha, come over here. Open the box. She cuts open the box and opens the flaps. And on the right flap, I see Toys R Us. My dad reaches in and pulls out this beautiful blue BMX bike. And I'm staring at this bike, the exact bike that was on the Toys R Us kids catalog cutout in my room. My dad, when he presented the bike to my sister, and he didn't even look over or wink or like smile at me or give me this sort of thing where like, Hassan, maybe one day you'll understand. Nope. He just looked at Aisha and was like, here you go, Aisha. She's looking up at me and she's, she stares at me and she can see, she can just tell how mad I am. And she's like, Hassan, by Lona, lo. You know, why don't you take it out for the first ride? And I'll be honest, you know, as an older brother, I felt very entitled to that first ride. She opens the door and she's like, look, Hassan, by just take it for one lap around the cul-de-sac. And I grab those rubber handlebars and I'm just like, that boom and I take off and I'm flying she's like and I'm like eat my dust and I am moving on this bike I am switching through all 17 speeds it is 21.1 pounds as advertised and I am flying she's like come back and I see this curb and I'm about to pop a wheelie on this curb I'm like yeah I'm gonna fly on this BMX bike and I hit that curb bam and the bike goes left and I go right and that beautiful blue BMX bike boom crashes into the sidewalk and all of that fresh blue paint just chips off the side of the bike it hadn't even been 20 minutes. And then I can hear the pitter-patter of Aisha's chuppels. 
She's running over and she's just crying. She's standing there in her sandals and sweatpants. She's like, Austin, by why did you do that? Why did you do that? I gave you the first ride. I didn't even say, I didn't say I'm sorry. I just remember I fell off the bike and I looked at it and I knew, I knew when I saw that paint off the side. I was like, this is messed up. I didn't even say, I couldn't, I could, I, I was speechless. I just remember going to her room the following day and being like, Aisha, listen, I'm really, really sorry. And because kids are so honest, she couldn't even lie to me and say, it's okay. Because it wasn't. That was the first time where she wasn't thrilled to like follow me around. She didn't follow me around. All of a sudden, this girl who was my shadow doesn't really want to hang out with me. After that moment, the mushroom cut started growing out and she got like hair down to her shoulders. We got older. We had separate rooms. She started learning English so she could speak to other kids at school and make friends. Because before, I kind of represented also like a mediator between Oligar and America. This is the playground. This is where you play tetherball. This is where we do this. That's the girls' bathroom. This is the boys' bathroom. This is this. This is Sesame Street. This I would just, I could explain all these things to her. And I could see it the more and more she learned English and started having her own autonomy. And once she started to get her own autonomy, but that meant that she needed Hassan by less and less. Did you miss the shadow when you were losing it? Yeah, it sucked. I started to realize it, and I was like, man, like, yeah, I, I kind of miss that time in our life. Does she look up to you now? I don't know if she looks up to me. I know she calls me every once in a while for advice. And what's crazy is Aisha has always used it as emotional blackmail on me because that blue BMX bike is still in the garage to this day. We were going to what's called like a family dawah. The family dawah means like a family party. I'm late. Get in the camera, you close the doors, and she's like, oh my God, Hasanbai, you are so selfish. And I'm like, what are you talking like? And she's like, really? You're not selfish? She points to the corner of the garage. Garage door opens. And she'll she'll be like, hey, look. Look at the side of the bike. Why is one side of the bike just completely missing paint? Oh, yeah, because you crashed it, Hassan Bai. You crashed it when I was a little kid. I mean, yeah, it's a joke now to us, but it's one of those things that she's always had to just remind me of how selfish I am, of like, like just from the earliest memories, you always screwed me over, Hassan Bai. Remember. Big thanks to Hassan Minaj for that story. And know this, Hassan has not just one, but two shows on Netflix right now. This brother is hilarious. Check out his comedy special, Homecoming King, and his latest show. Watch it, please. Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj. The original score for that story was by Renzo Gorio. The story is produced by Lena Masitsis and Mark Ristich. Now when Snap continues... We're going to cross the uncrossable line. Stay tuned. From WNYC Studios and Snap Judgment's Underground Lair, welcome back to our 2018 Look Back special. My name is Glenn Washington. And for our next story, Mary Kim. Mary was sitting at the dinner table with her father, Jim Keel, when her father revealed a dark family secret. Snap Judgment. 
when I was 12 as he was chewing into some roasted mackerel. Suddenly, his eyes began to well with tears. He said, my sister, this was her favorite kind of fish. He took a bite of mackerel and he said, she disappeared when I was 14. I, I was stunned. Here was a ghost in our family. After he told me about her at dinner, he would include her during his very solemn and long Thanksgiving prayers, the sister that he, that he so loved. It wasn't until much later that I realized that the reason why he'd never told us about her before was that she was North Korean. Many decades ago, when Korea was still unified as one country, my grandfather couldn't afford to send both his eldest children to school, and so chose his eldest-born son. That meant that Bo-ok was sent to teacher education program in a remote country village. And she was not satisfied with that at all because she was number one in her class. Instead, she chose to go north where education opportunities were freer at the time for women. And then the Korean War happened. My father never saw her again. Then in 2005, the Red Cross offered my father, Jin Gil, the chance to see his sister, Bo Ok, for the first time in more than 55 years. Not in person, but via webcam. They would set up a video chat, like Skype, with North Korea on one side and South on the other. My father took his family members to a cramped hotel room in Seoul in South Korea. In the room was a video camera and a large screen. The family sat down and waited, making nervous conversation. He pulled out his letter. He spent months writing, organizing, and preparing his six-page letter that recounted everything he ever wanted to say. I had no idea how she might appear. I expected to see a living skeleton because of North Korea's tendency to starve its own people. The screen flickers and the connection establishes in Bo Ok's face and that of our northern relatives. We see them. Sister, this is Jingil. Jingil? Is that really you? Yes. Good to see you. It's been so long. Surprisingly, her cheeks were full. I noticed that she seemed to have a little bit of makeup on and had a lovely traditional garment on with silver beading, which must have been expensive, unusual, 
In preparation to see you, I wrote your letter. Uh, I'll read it first. And then he launches into one of his oldest memories of her. I don't know if you remember, but one winter night, we had a fight. So Dad punished you by making you stand outside in the freezing cold. I felt sorry for you. So I tried to go outside, but Mom and Dad wouldn't let me. So I told them I had to pee. I remember how we were freezing together in the cold. I felt sorry about that. After you went to North Korea, I didn't realize that when we lived together, I never told you that I love you. That broke my heart. He could barely speak. My father is not an emotional man. Until I was 18, he never told me that he loved me. On the southern side, of course, our, our shoulders were shaking. On the northern side, she was kind of, she was amused. It was a kind of, kind of um, slightly mocking, as if, hmm, look at what's become of you. That soft, that soft southern living, a traditional Korean man would never have said that. My dad noticed that, but kept on reading. But even now, when I see high school students with ponytails in her hair, I am reminded of you. I find myself looking at those kids as if they were you. My memories are frozen at the time we last say goodbye. When he spoke about searching for that ponytailed girl, I understood my father in a way I hadn't before. What it must have been like for him to have four daughters and why he so insisted that we all get the best education we could. He wanted to give me what his own family never gave her. About 20 years after you left, I went to the U.S. I took your mom and dad with me and take care of them. But they keep on wanting me to go back to Korea. Deep down inside, they must have thought you would escape North Korea and return home one day. Mom cried every night. He reveals to her that he has four daughters, an only daughter. She jokes, rich in daughters, and everyone laughs. <laughs> and then she reveals that she herself has three daughters and two sons. But you need sons. 
not daughters. You need sons to protect the country and reunite Korea. Soon, my father's grand filibuster ended. Finally, his sister Bo-ok was given a chance to speak. Well, younger brother, let me tell you about my life. I remember we are so dirt poor. She spends the next only 15 minutes to my father's hour and 15 minutes to recount what has occurred in the past 55 years for her. Then the Korean War broke out. The American bastards came to Korea and killed our soldiers in the streets. So I became a volunteer soldier and took care of injuries. She started speaking about how the American bombs fell and took her leg. I was so upset about that. Remember, I used to be the fastest runner in school. But then our great leader said, Don't cry. The American bastards are the problem, not your leg. <laughs> then she married a man, and then more bombs fell from the American side, and then he lost both his legs. <laughs> But I made a family to him and gave birth five children. You wouldn't be able to imagine what it's like for cripples to raise a family. One time, I woke up to find my first son with a severe virus, almost about to die. But my husband and I couldn't run him to the hospital. So our neighbor carried our son on his back like a horse and ran him to the hospital during the middle of the night. When our great leaders heard of our sick son, they ran over to the hospital and told the doctors, you need to help him survive. You need to help him. Once our nation is unified, he needs to take his parents back to their hometown. I was so moved. Such a good life in this socialist community wouldn't exist in a capitalist nation. I couldn't tell if she was believing her own words. I looked to her eldest son, and unlike his mother's plump cheeks, his cheeks were cliff-like hollows. hollows. I'm only alive today because our great leader's love and support. I got everything in life I ever wanted. The amount of swabbing and sweating that her eldest son was doing seemed to contradict her words. We don't have many years left now. All I want is to see our country 
unified. Yes, I believe that they will be here soon. Yes, I do too. But we need to kick out the American bastards. We need to kick them He out held his tongue mm. and he listened and to her. Finally meet and live happily together. Yeah. She pauses for a moment and my father clears his throat and suggests let's let's sing a song together. Yes, what should we sing? Do you know we are one? It's one of the many anthems blending both the national anthems of both Koreas. Both North Korean and South Korean family members sang together in unison. My father, still full of tears, took up the words. Our hope is for one country. We pray even in dreams. The song began to come to its end. They were given a signal that their meeting was about to end. While they were singing, the screen darkened. My aunt's face disappears. It's been 10 years since that reunion. Thanksgivings are smaller now. My father's prayers are quieter now. His prayers are shorter. He prays for our family. But he never mentions her, no. I mention her. I ask him about whether or not she's still alive. He doesn't say. He lets a pause hang between us. He's very mm, resigned that he will never see her again, that she is that she is dead. It's me who hopes that who still harbors hope that she's alive. Thanks so much to Mary Kim for sharing your father's story. Mary Kim is a poet, a writer, and a professor at the Savannah College of Art and Design. We'll have a link to some of her work on our website, snapjudgment.org. Special thanks as well, Yong Nam and Mik Yong Kim, for being the voice actors for Chin Kiel and Bo Ok. The original score for that piece was by Davy Kim. It was produced as well by Davy Kim. It's that time, Snappers. It's that time. And we want to thank you. Thank you so much for a wonderful year. And please know this. All the stories that you've heard for years and years and years are available for your listening pleasure right now on our website, snapjudgment.org. We appreciate your support and know that Snap was produced by the team that likes to mix hot chocolate into our hot chocolate. 
Please give it up for the Saint Knickknack, the Patty Whack himself, Mr. Mark Ristich. Pat McSinney Miller did not eat roast reindeer. That is slander. Anna Sussman, she can fit through a chimney. Liz Mack, she can write her own prescriptions. Nancy doesn't trust modern medicine. Lopez, Eliza Smith doesn't trust medicine that's modern. Dizzy Egan wears white. Leon Morimoto performed his own appendectomy with a fork. Lenzo Gorio, he still plays Operation. Taylor Decott is a doctor. At least that's what they say at the bar. Shayna Sheely runs the bar at the doctor's office, while Jasmine Aguilera, she thinks chocolate is the best medicine. And even though this is not the news, no way it's just the news. In fact, you could leave a pie out to cool, only to discover that you might have put that pie out in your dreams, or in another life, or maybe in a book, but that sticky mess on your hands and face tells an entirely different story. Even then, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC. Yeah.